Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? If it's your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I am the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We will be in Matthew's Gospel today. A little bit about who we are as a community. Uh, we are an intentionally simple church that is trying to live our whole life and our whole being centered around the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That We are people who know that God himself has entered into human history to save sinners from themselves and from their sin. And we see that working out in very five very simple ways as a church, uh, as we sort of see as, as just basics for what a church is, and those are word, worship, community, witness, and renewal. We're people who, who believe God's word, the, the Bible is God's word to us as the people of God, uh, that we are here to worship uh, Jesus, and not just when we come together on Sunday, but with our whole lives, that our whole lives are lived as a living sacrifice in response to the fact that the God of the universe has saved us forgiven us, made us whole and alive, and so that our whole life is about enjoying Him, and our whole life is about bringing Him glory. And we do this as a community. The, the, the church uh, is a people, not a person. Uh, and that to actually do these things well, to actually live out the gospel of Jesus, is to, be, to do so together. And as a church, that means that we believe that, that to be a member of a church is to take responsibility for a people, and for that people to take responsibility for you. Uh, witness, we have news. Jesus rose from the dead and forgives sinners and makes them right with God. And, and, and we witnessed that news to the city in renewal, that God said that we are to love our neighbors and that we're to love each other, and that we do that not to make the world right again, as Jesus will do, but as a foretaste that he will someday finally do it. Um, I will read our text for today, and then we'll pray. Uh, I'm in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he and his disciples, uh, he, said to his, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, please pray with me. Uh, King Jesus, we do thank you for this day. Uh, we come to worship you as Christ, as Messiah, as King. Uh, we come to worship you, uh, O Son of God. We come to worship you, God made flesh. We come to worship you, uh, God among us, Emmanuel. We come to worship you, Jesus. We come to be changed by you. We come to be shaped by the reality of who you are. We come to be formed in, in the reality. We come to be convicted of our sin. We come to be forgiven for our sin. We come to be reshaped in the, in the reality of the cross and your death and your burial and your resurrection. And, and I just pray for us that we would come together in the power of that gospel, that, that that we can't earn your love, but that you died on the cross to forgive us for our sins and to make us right with you. And so then our whole life is lived in a response to that wonderful and amazing truth. Help me, Jesus, to preach this word and to preach it well. Uh, and the things that are just of me, may they be forgotten, Lord. But the things that are of you, may they shine. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. And in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. 
So we are beginning a new sermon series, and I would say that in the eight years that I've been preaching almost every Sunday uh, since we started the church, uh, this is the closest I think we've ever come to a topical uh, sermon series. And so I thought that we would do a series on how you can like get more money or something, whatever they make topical sermon series about. Um, but I decided not to. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, attempt to take every book of the New Testament and to, to, to answer the question from every one of those books, what is this author trying to say? And, and we do this based on several convictions. One, this is the Word of God. And, and I hope you've seen this in how we preach, how I preach, how Eric preaches, how Brian preaches, how our preachers preach. Uh, we don't come to the text and say, this is what it meant back then, and here's how we're going to apply it to your life. But that we believe that this is God's Word. As a church, we believe that this is God's Word to us today. And the things that are here are for us. And though this was written 2,000 years ago, there is not a barrier between us and this text and what God has for us. And so it's important for us to be able to come to this text and say, what is Matthew trying to say? Why did Matthew... Now, mind you, he's got parchment or vellum or some other lambskin thing and some piece of stick wood that he's dipping his ink into? Why did he take the time to write 28 chapters on vellum? You don't even know what vellum is, and neither do I, because I don't, you don't get to hold them. When they find it, they put it in a museum. You look at it, oh, it's vellum. It's just leather. Just leather paper, whatever that means, right? Why did he take the time to write this down? Why did he think that this is important? Why did he someone think that someone needed to know this? What was he trying to say? And more importantly, Little A author Matthew, in concert with big A author God through the Holy Spirit, what does God have for us that he's trying to say through Matthew, A, to those first people he's writing to, but ultimately to us? And this really occurred to me as I was dealing with, with my own family crisis, hospital stuff with my kid and, and all this stuff, that I realized as I went to Philippians, I needed Philippians. I didn't need a verse from Philippians, though it's so encouraging. Every time you get that text from someone in just that right moment to say, hey, remember who God is. Here's a text in the Bible, or here's an email, or here's a thing, or here's a card. Uh, but what I realized as I was digging through Philippians and reading Philippians over and over and over again, what my soul needed was what Paul had for that church. The whole message that yes, there is suffering in the world, and yes, Jesus has conquered it, and yes, Jesus is mightier, and even when you lose, you win in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even when things are hard, they are okay because Jesus is ruling and reigning and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. And I needed that. And what I realized was really nourishing my own soul in that moment was not just a verse out of Philippians, but Philippians. And then when Paul sat down and wrote Philippians, he had a letter for a church. And likewise, when Matthew sat down, he, he, he had a message. And, and I think uh, it's so difficult, right? As much as I try and squeeze like an hour or two into my sermon every week, and I don't because there's lunch, whatever, I don't get to sit down and preach all of Matthew. Right? I don't get to say, okay, open up Matthew chapter 1. We'll stay till Matthew 28 because it takes me an hour just to read the thing. But Matthew's doing something there. And I think, and I want you, my hope and my prayer for you is that you're in your Bible every day, that you open up God's Word and you dig in. But the problem with that is that when I only get to come and preach like five lines, we don't get the sweep of what he's saying and how all those pieces kind of fit together. And when you sit down and you read your Bible and you read your three chapters a day, you don't get the sweep 
You get good, amazing, wonderful, nourishing, God-glorifying stuff. I mean, if you read Matthew 1, 2, and 3, you got that, that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. It's Jesus who saves. Uh, he's God among us. That God is working and bridging the gap between the Old Testament. You got a lot in the first three chapters. A lot in those first three chapters. But my hope for you is that when you read Matthew, you kind of have a sense, when you read Matthew, because this is your Bible, when you're reading Matthew, oh, I know what Matthew's up to here. Oh, hey, look, it's the sweet. He's, oh, hey, look what Luke is doing. He's Because Luke acts as two volumes. I mean, Matthew sat down and wrote 28 chapters on Bellum, but Luke did two whole books, put them together, too long for one scroll. Luke acts with a dash in between. Luke acts, right? Why did he do that? Why did he take the time? It was not word processed, right? It was hard. It's hard to write on Bellum. What's he trying to say to us? What's John trying to say to us? What's Paul trying to say to the Corinthians that God's got for you right now? Why did John write the book of Revelation? What, why even read 3 John? You know what 3 John is? It's there. You know what 2 Thessalonians is? I love you and Brian's Bible study this last uh, few months. You do, but sometimes we even miss these books because we just don't even know what he's up to. And we missed that this is our book. This is God's word to us. And God has something for us here. And so that's kind of what we're doing in the next few months as we dig in. And today we're digging into Matthew. And so my hope is when we're done here, <clears throat> and I'll kind of explain how we do it. Uh, my hope is that when we're done here, when you pick up Matthew, you know that Matthew wrote Matthew so that you would know that Jesus is Messiah. And that Jesus is the whole answer of the whole Old Testament culminating in God himself dwelling among us to wipe sin away and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Finally, it will come. And it's now and not yet. And so that when you read, I don't know, Matthew 5, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can put together, oh, Messiah is coming to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And you can begin to own this book more and more for yourself because this is God's word to you. Okay, so the way we're going to approach this is I'm going to every week, now this is where I just do a normal sermon, what I normally do, right? I'm going to take the sort of one of the main paragraphs that sums up what the author is after in their book, and then we'll walk through it and kind of connect the dots in and around the rest of the book. So we're in Matthew, we're in chapter 16. This is an extremely, extremely famous passage because we love to go to this passage, and we don't have time to preach the next passage, but this is a great example of when the Apostle Peter is so human because he's so on in this paragraph. And then the next paragraph, he rebukes Jesus, the Son of God. Whoop-a-doo. Um, so here we are in 13. Now, when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea and Philippi, or Caesarea Philippi, if you're in the ESV, uh, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? This is the question that Matthew's actually trying to answer with his gospel. So Matthew is amazing. Matthew, also called Levi, several of the apostles have a couple of names. It's kind of confusing. Peter's going to get a couple here in a second. We'll see. He's got like three. Oh, he's off. I'll calm down. Uh, and, and Matthew, he's a Hebrew. He's a Jew. He's a tax collector. Here's what tax collectors do. Tax collectors are not an IRS agent who takes more money than you think he should out of the money that you make. He's not the guy tallying stuff up on the, your pay stub. 
a tax collector in uh, Israel in the first century is a guy who's working for the Roman government to take your stuff to give it to an army that is invaded so that the army that is keeping you down is fed and clothed. So he goes to his neighbors and he says, give me your money. He takes your money and he gives it to Rome and then Rome uses that to pay the guys who push you around, who've hurt your friends, who've taken your stuff, who've wrecked everything. He's your homie, right? Like he, he's, he went to high school with this guy. So the guy from high school comes up and says, give me the money. I'm giving it to the Roman soldiers so they can push you around some more. Guess what? Nobody likes these guys. Nobody likes these guys. Oh, and by the way, the vast majority of them, as far as we can tell from the historical record, actually take more money than they need to. They get a license that they have to buy from the Romans, so they have the, the sort of permission to take your money. They come and they take your money, and when they take your money, they add on a surcharge for taking your money. So they get rich on your backs while they're paying the invading army to push you around. Not popular. So much so that when you see Jesus hang out, the only people that hang out with them with sort of, sort of other felonious characters who are looked down upon by society. Jesus calls these guys often Zacchaeus, Matthew, to be a disciple. And, and the, the first century world is supposed to look at that and say, You picked that guy? But he sucks. Why did you pick that guy to be a disciple? And then we have to stop and remember why we ourselves are called to be disciples of Jesus. His life is a gospel message. As yours is, by the way. As yours is. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Okay. We need to know our Old Testaments. One of the most popular books by the time that we're in, with, in and around Jesus, is the book of Daniel. If you can go with me to Daniel chapter 7, we'll start in verse 9. Daniel's written 600 B.C. Daniel uh, is living in exile in Babylon and in Persia. He's a faithful Jewish guy living in the midst of a pagan world, and God gives him a couple of visions while he's there. And one of them, and, and, and you, would have, you were sitting there, and you were a first century, uh, first century Jew, this would have been what hit your mind. And maybe, maybe if you're one of those people like me or my kids, my kids always want to hear Daniel in the lion's den. Can we, can we hear Daniel in the lion's den again? Sure, let's do it. And then there's kind of a couple of things we can do with Daniel. So Daniel in the lion's den is like right before this or just around right before this. We either get to this stuff and say, that's weird. What's next? Uh, Joel's coming. Oh, that's weird too. Uh-oh. Um, let's get through these minor problems. Hey, it's the New Testament. Great. Or you can read it. It says this. As I looked, so this is the vision he's having. Mind you, this is coming to a guy in the middle of exile when nothing is as it should be. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is the fancy word for this. This is a theophany. He's seeing a manifestation or, or, or some appearance of God. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. 
a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. By the way, we don't have time to go there today, but go home and read uh, Revelation 19 and 20. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. So it kind of plays out these, these great uh, challenges in the world and how God is king of them all. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions. And behold, here's our part. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Or as John will put it, every tribe and tongue. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, let's just say, and maybe this is you, and I hope this is you, that you read Daniel enough that as soon as someone says son of man, you think of that. And Jesus uses this title, which is one of his preferred and favorite titles for himself. Who do you say the son of man is? Or pardon me, who do they say the son of man is? And so Matthew will begin to answer this question for us. 14, and they said, this is the disciples, some say John the Baptist, who's dead, by the way, at this point in time, might be helpful. Others say Elijah. Now, Elijah is one of the great prophets, and he's just taken up on the chariots of fire. So he disappeared. John's dead. Elijah disappeared. Oh, and by the way, that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So what's happening here? Something that that we see in the, in the historical record, and even as, as John the Baptist shows up, we don't even need outside the Bible to see this. There's this period of time between the end of the minor prophets, when they stop writing, the, what are called the writing prophets, and this time where Jesus is. Now, it seems to be there's stuff going on, and, and people are not, not supernaturalists, and they still think God is doing some things, but not like it was. And there's a clear sense in people that things are not the way that they were. The stuff of Elijah is not happening right now. The stuff of Isaiah is not happening. God's not speaking in the way that he spoke to those people in those days. And in comes John the Baptist, and in, in comes Jesus more clearly. And begin, you'll see this, people will say this about Jesus. He's like one of the prophets of old. Or he speaks with authority, not like one of our scribes. And so what they're beginning to say is, God's doing something. And I think the reason that the people can give this list, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. God seemed to be doing something with John the Baptist. Or maybe he's Jeremiah. God was doing something big with Jeremiah before everyone went into exile. Or maybe Elijah. Or maybe one of other, these other things. They're beginning to say, God's doing something. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it seems that God is doing something through this guy. And this is important for Matthew. Matthew was the preferred gospel of the early church. This was the one. If, if you ask, you ever played this game? 
This is what I do in my spare time. If you were on a desert island and you only had one book of the Bible, which book of the Bible would you have, right? I don't know, Philippians. I don't know. What do you got? Maybe that's just me. That's just car rides in the pack family. You're welcome that you're not on the car ride. Um, <laughs> if you had asked the early church, if you had one book consistently, Irenaeus, Augustine, Papias, Origen, these guys think this is the one. These guys think Matthew's the one. Matthew's the jam. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, because Matthew is awesome. Getting to spend time with Matthew this week. Matthew is awesome. But one of the big things is this is the bridge. And I think it rightly goes right here between, at the very front of the New Testament, this is the bridge in the story. This is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the bridge between what God was doing. God made all things good, and human beings broke it, and we did so very quickly. God being gracious in his mercy and his might doesn't just decide to scrap the whole problem but makes a pro- uh, program but makes a promise that he's going to send someone who's going to fix it. And then he's going to have the special people who tell the world about him. And what do you know about that special people in the Old Testament? The people of God in the Old Testament, what do we, they do again and again and again and again? They wreck everything. They disobey God. They don't listen to him. They do other stuff. They worship pretend gods. They worship all kinds of pretend gods. They go in with this army or that army or this country or that country, and they're not faithful to God. But what is God? He's faithful again and again and again and again, and he sends his prophets and he calls them back, come back to faithfulness, walk away from sin, walk in my ways, and he makes these promises. Okay, it's broken now. You broke it. But Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says that there's a time coming when he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and he's going to restore things. And the Torah, the law of God, will be written on hearts. And he says to Joel, there's a time coming when the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. And again, this is, this is stuff that we just need to know our Bibles more and more and more. Because if you're an Old Testament person and you hear that, you think about all the different guys in the Bible that the Bible talks about having the Spirit of God on. right? So there's a guy who builds this mighty tent And we say, so what? It's the mighty tent where God chose to make his dwelling place in the tabernacle. There's a guy, the first guy in the Bible here having the Spirit of God upon him is the guy who makes the tabernacle. He's a carpenter and he puts together a tent. And God inspires him to make this beautiful, wonderful, amazing tent. The Spirit of God falls on kings like David and falls on these different people, but not everybody. That God manifests himself in a special way in certain people's lives. But he makes this promise... And he says, you know that thing that I did when I dwelt in a temple? You know that thing I did when I dwelt in a tent? There's a time coming when I'm going to do that in all of my people. Every person who is a believer in God will be indwelt by the Spirit. And for us, we say, okay, great. Because we don't think about it. We don't, if I might, I don't know that we care that much in 2016 that God dwells with us. I don't know that we care that much that Jesus Christ died on the cross to make us holy, to have the Holy Spirit dwell inside us, that God is present with us. And what we experience day in, day out as the people of God is actually different than what the people of God, in a temporal, real way, that God actually dwells with us. Then It was a pipe dream for them. Now, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's still a pipe dream. This, this, thing, this thing where God would come with us. God would come and forgive our sins. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. You sin, you go, you pay the price for your sin. 
through the sacrificial system, but then you've got to do it again and again and again, and it doesn't make a person completely right with God. And they say that there's a time coming when God is going to come do this thing and make me completely right with God. Every sin I ever committed against God is going to be made completely right, and God is going to be the one who's going to do it. And not only that, he's going to write his law in my heart. Not only that, he's going to give me a new heart, and he's going to empower me to live a new life for God, with God, and by God. And all of a sudden, sudden, here's Jesus. And Matthew, again and again and again, is trying to connect the dots, say, remember all those promises. Remember everything God said he was going to do? It's time. It's time. So Matthew's going to Give us the answer to his question. Now, because this is here and because he's answering the question, I don't think this, that he just like engineered this. I think this is something he witnessed with his own two eyes as a disciple of Jesus. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Asterisk, side note. So if you're reading John's Gospel... There's all these I am statements where Jesus says, I am this and I am that, and it's all meant to take us back to Exodus 3 where God says, I am who I am. This is not one of those times. <laughs> Unfortunately, Greek has all these wonderful little equivalents in the language where you can do one thing and another and still say I am and in English. We kind of just have that one way to say it. There it is. The, there it is. I am. <laughs> the one way we can say that. He's not doing that. He's not using that, that construction, just as you're reading your own Bibles. I found one. No, you didn't. Um, but who do you say that I am? This is important for us. For you and for your life, in a sense, it doesn't matter to you who I say Jesus is. In a sense. It doesn't matter who Bart Ehrman says Jesus is. We, we can, as especially as evangelical Christians, we can have like an intellectualism where we can say, well, so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this. Well, he says Jeremiah, and that guy says Elijah. Isn't this interesting that we're talking about all the things that people are saying? What counts right now is who do you say Jesus is? What counts for eternity for you is who do you say Jesus is? Pete, that's nice that they think I'm Elijah. Who do you think I am? Because you, knowing that I think Jesus is the Son of God, takes all your hidden sin and all your right things for the wrong reasons and all the wrong things you've done, and He died on that cross for your sins if you are a Christian. If I'm the only one out of the two of us who believes that, that doesn't help you. You need to make a decision about who Jesus is. You need to understand who Jesus is. All right, Pete, not Pete, Pete, this Pete. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, Mashiach. You're the, you're the one. You're that Psalm 2, 1. You're that fulfillment of that promise, Genesis 3.15, that one's going to come and crush the head of the snake. 
that one's going to come and have this everlasting kingdom like David's. God's going to send somebody to save the world. And you, Jesus, poor, marginalized, Galilean, peasant preacher, you're him. You're the one. You're the Christ. Now, I'm also going to say, I don't think that Pete, and here's why I think this, I don't think he fully, 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 because we can do this thing to Peter, and let's not do this to Peter, where we look at Peter and say, oh, look, he gets it. This is the second member of the Trinity, and then he rebukes him and tells him to get behind, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I don't think Peter gets the whole picture yet, but he's right to say that this is the Son of God. I, I, I don't think he can quite put the whole God himself, the, the I am, I am, totally together, but he knows this is the one. This is the one that God sent. This is Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, this, this phrase is one that's applied to David. So this, all this is coming together, and these are the fulfillment of all these. This is the fulfillment of all of God's Davidic promises. He makes all these promises to David. Right? That there's somebody who's going to come. I mean, I, I think one of the clearest ones if you go with me to Psalm 110. So the Son of God piece is fulfilling this Davidic promise. Now David wrote this. We're in Psalm 110. I'm going to read the top. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, pardon me, I missed the first part. There it is. The Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to Adonai. These are two words that the Bible uses for God. In fact, Adonai is so used the Lord, that second Lord, because if you're looking at your Bible, you're going to see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Hashem, or yod or Yahweh, or the, name, the proper name of God. And Adonai is the word that is so associated with God by the time that the Masorites, they're the guys who wrote the version of the Hebrew Bible that our Bible was based on, they don't even use his name by like, the, by, by like the ninth century. They don't even use the word Yahweh anymore because they think it's too holy. Now, I, I don't think that we need to do that, but we just, that's just their history. The, the name, they use words like Hashem, which means the name or the name. But the word they choose to use for that name is Adonai. Right? It's used again and again and again and again in the Bible for God. And so all of a sudden we get this very confusing little statement that David writes that God said to God, If uh, Andrew said to the preacher, well, that would be a weird sermon, wouldn't it? Um, the Lord said, says to my Lord, now mind you, the my Lord is someone in David, the king, who's the king of everything, the greatest king that Israel ever had, says my Lord. He's bowing the knee to that guy. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments for the womb of the morning. A dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which is a weird thing to say, but if you know your Old Testament, in the book of Genesis we hear about this priest called Melchizedek who Abraham pays a tithe to. 
to the author of Hebrews in the New Testament and say, by the way, Abraham bowed the knee and David bowed the knee to this guy and this guy is the Messiah and this guy is Jesus. And the whole of the Old Testament, everybody that is important in the Old Testament thinks that this Jesus guy is a big, 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 big deal. And that is what Matthew is trying to convey to us. This is that guy. This is the Son of God. This is the one that David said, my Lord. This is the one, order of Melchizedek, follow it back. Abraham bows a knee to. So the whole Old Testament is leaning up to this guy. And I think that's one of Matthew's big points here. But who do you say I am? Simon replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, of course, when Matthew writes this down, he understands how significant it is that Peter says this. And Jesus answered him. Now here he gets, here's his other name. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Second, kind of from the second century on, they're looking forward to a Messiah who's going to come. He's going to kick out the Greeks, and he's going to kick out Herod and his team, and he's going to kick out the Romans, and everything's going to be awesome because the Romans are going to get kicked out, and we're just going to hang out, and everything will be fine, and everything will be dandy, and we'll be in the land, and everything will be great. I think Revelation 19 tells us there's a time when that land's going to get cleaned out and God is going to sit and rule there just like that. But what they miss is something bigger and greater and grander is happening here and that it's not of flesh and blood like that. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Yeah, you think I'm the Son of the living God? You're right. My Father who is in heaven, God Almighty. And I tell you that, that you are Peter, and on this rock, Christian rock band Petra, ever heard of them? No? It means rock. Peter is a, a wordplay. Peter means rock, but in English, Peter and rock don't sound anything like. So like Petra, think the rock band, because I know you listen to a lot of Petra, like you listen to a lot of Striper. They're both really good, by the way. <laughs> and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, if you're in the ESV, you can have a little two next to your rock. It says, by the way, rock sounds similar to Peter. I will build my church. That's us. Now, I, I think what he's after is not just you, Peter, you're the first. You, you get to be the first pope, Peter. I, sorry. Nobody knows what a pope is here. Uh, Jesus didn't mention the pope here. And by the way, Peter's also got a wife. Just saying. Just saying. I think what he's saying is on this confession, on this reality, you're saying that I am the Messiah, that you say that I am the Son of God. This reality, the reality that Jesus Christ, this marginalized Galilean present preacher, is God himself who's humbled himself, who's come into history, who's lived the life we should have lived, who's died the death that we ultimately deserve, has come to set the captives free. He's come to fulfill all those wonderful promises of the Old Testament. He's come to wipe every tear from every eye. He's come to make us right with God. So the Holy Spirit will indwell us as the people of God so that we can be called mighty things like a royal priesthood so the new heavens and the new earth can come and everything can be restored and everything can be put back back the way it's supposed to be. It's happening in this thing right here. The Christ event. This confession that this is the one who's doing all of that. That's what the church is built on. That's what our life is built on. That's what our church is built on. The confession. This. This is the Christ. Christ. 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a comfort to a little band of marginalized Galileans who know that they've had an encounter with God. And let's put it in the context. It's not just abstract. These are people who know without, beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have walked around with God himself, Emmanuel, God among us. And in the first century, what are they doing? Dying. Being killed. Being persecuted. Being driven out of their homes. Being driven to far off places. This is not, this is not the Christianity of 324, which is not the Christianity of 2016, by the way, uh, no matter what the Da Vinci Code may have told you 10 years ago. When I became a Christian, Da Vinci Code was a thing and everybody was freaking out. And I just remember thinking, isn't that a fictional book? I just read the Bible and Jesus is awesome. But I digress. Uh, for a long time, Christianity's not the powerhouse. There's no advantage of putting the, the, the Jesus sticker on your plumber truck in 200 AD. No one's giving you work because there's a sticker on the back of your car that says that my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Right? That doesn't make any sense then either because they didn't have stickers. <laughs> there's no benefit to being a Christian at that point in time. In fact, all they get is driven out, killed, and marginalized. They're building their reality and their life on that rock. But yeah, they don't believe it, but we believe it. They don't know it, but we know it. Guess what? That's important for us in Seattle in 2016. We're not marginalized, perhaps, the way the first century church was, but we're marginalized. We're poked fun of and we're made fun of and we're looked down upon. And as we're being poked fun of and made fun of and looked down upon, as things increase, as people get turned down for promotions or jobs or whatever, I got turned down for a job. Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, that didn't work out because they didn't like it. Because I love Jesus. But I have Jesus. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then they strictly charged, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, I don't think that what this means here is the guy who just called himself the son of man. He's not trying to keep it a secret. He doesn't want to go the world's way. Oh, the guy who's come to kick out the Romans. Let's make him our king and have him kick out the Romans. Not that way. Not their way. But this thing that keeps happening in Matthew's gospel is this heaven and earth thing. We saw this last week when we looked at the Great Commission. Through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven has come to earth. And now through his church, the kingdom of heaven has come to earth. The kingdom is at large. The kingdom is on the move. And the Christ event has happened, and it's going forth to the ends of the earth. And it's real, and it's tangible, and it's temporal. Spirit of God dwelling with us. And so Jesus comes then. 
And this is how Matthew set up. This is, this is the, the core of what he's after, is this confession and this reality that Jesus, the Son of God, is Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything. And it's all coming to fruition in here. And we see this throughout Matthew, right? Matthew opens with this quote from Isaiah. And you will call him Emmanuel. Matthew tells us, which means God among us. In the person of Jesus, God himself has come to dwell among us. And Jesus in his opening teaching on the Sermon on the Mount says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're not after the kingdom of earth. We're after the kingdom of heaven. And this even comes ultimately through this reality. If you go with me. Matthew, just a couple pages over. Uh, Matthew 26, we'll start in 26. Now they were eating. Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The bridge, the fulfillment, the culmination comes that Jesus has come to pay the price for our sins so that we can be participants in the kingdom of heaven, so that we can be people of the kingdom of God. And the amazing thing about the Christ event, it's manifest and it's manifesting. It's now and it's not yet. We are participants of this kingdom reality as ambassadors of that kingdom. Uh, the, the kingdom is going forth. And we saw this in the Great Commission, right? And it's going to go. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples. Invite people into the reality of this kingdom. Invite them into the reality of this Christ. Invite them into the reality of who I am. It's being manifest. It's manifest and it's being manifest. What Matthew, and I think John's almost doing the opposite. Well, we'll get there, pardon me. We'll get there when we get to John. Matthew's message for us is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is all the yeses of the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in him. He is God himself who's come to dwell among us. And that dwelling wasn't just in the Christ event. The dwelling was inaugurated in the Christ event. The full-on, full-meal deal of the kingdom of heaven is now and is coming in a way that's beyond imagined. And so for us as the church, that means that we understand when we worship Messiah as participants of the kingdom, we're participating in, the re in heavenly realities. Even here on earth, when we get together in this simple little room with our simple things, and Eric's going to come up and play guitar, when we're singing, we're not singing into the air. We're participants of a, a kingdom singing to a king. We're, we're, we're worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. And that's reality. He's Messiah. And for you as an individual, this means you are representative of that kingdom. As you go forth from here, you belong to that kingdom and you bring the good news of that kingdom and that we as a church are, are an outpost and an out of that kingdom and a kingdom community, which means we do absolutely everything different. And we bring the message of that kingdom to a city who desperately needs it, to a world that desperately needs the reality of this king, a king 
who set aside his crown to take a cross to die in our place to make us right with God, to welcome us into his kingdom. Uh, in, in a moment, we're going to transition here to communion. Uh, and we do this. Logistically, what we're looking at is on the far side, we have gluten-free. And on the, in the middle, we have normal bread and we have juice and wine in a basket for the offering. When we come, we come and we celebrate because we're partic- participating in this heavenly reality. We, we come as people forgiven for our sins and welcomed into the kingdom of God. So we do this in remembrance of Jesus and that his body was broken and his blood was shed to cleanse us of our sin and make us right with God. I'm, I'm going to read this section one more time and then we'll pray. Now, they were eating. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given it, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, that new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for today, for your grace and for your mercy in our lives. And I just pray that this would be real to us. If, 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 we, if we can't say, this is the, the Christ, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Reveal it to us, God, because we know that we can't even muster that up from ourselves, but we, we need you to reveal that to us, that it's not flesh and blood who professes these things, but these are heavenly realities that we are participating in. I pray for us as your people that there will be nothing more important for us than we could stand on that rock, on that confession, and say that Jesus is the Christ. That we would see that, that Matthew's not a book in a vacuum, but it's a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament of what you promised and what you fulfilled and what you're fulfilling. And we can only do this by your grace and mercy and power. And so we ask for that. Empower us, Jesus, to confess. Empower us to praise your name. Empower us to witness the reality of your gospel. Empower us to be this gathering, this church, and this king, be, be representatives of that kingdom reality. Empower us, Jesus, for your glory to enjoy you with everything we've got and to make much of your name. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.